Shalom, Shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm delighted to hear that you are drawn to the Jewish root that supports the grafted in branches. You know, Torah is central to properly understand and perform the will of Hashem, that is, God. It is crucial for us to understand theologically that the primary purpose in Hashem's giving of the Torah as a way of making someone forensically righteous only achieves its goal when the person, by faith, accepts that Yeshua, Jesus, is the promised Messiah spoken about therein. Welcome to Parashat Nitzavim, Standing. The address is Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 9, through chapter 30, verse 20, or in your English Bibles it starts at 29, verse 10, and runs through 30, verse 20. The reading date is for Shabbat, and I'm the author, Tor teacher Ariel Ben Lyman. The written commentary was updated on July 4th of 2006. Note that all quotations are taken from the complete Jewish Bible translation by David H. Stern. Jewish New Testament Publications Incorporated, unless otherwise noted. Let's begin with the opening blessing for the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, asher bachar banu mekol ha'amim, v'natan lanu et Torato. Baruch atah Adonai notein ha-Torah, amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe. You have selected us from among all the peoples and have given us your Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. The parasha for this week is a most significant one. Of course, that's not to suggest that any of the parashiot that we study are less than significant studies. Rather, a verse-by-verse commentary of this particular week's study would prove to be very informative for the average reader. Now, space doesn't permit me in my particular commentaries to do a complete verse-by-verse study. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and and, um, explain why I think it's the most significant one by explaining what I believe to be the uh, the crux of the passage, that is to say the central teaching of the Torah portion today. Let me start with a pasuk, a verse, that is... um, It's an interesting verse. I'll read the verse. I won't read the address. I'll read the verse, and then I'm going to read another verse, and then um, we'll see what happens, okay? This first passage reads this way, quote, For Moshe writes about the righteousness grounded in the Torah, that the person who does these things will attain life through them. Moreover, the righteousness grounded in trusting says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend to heaven? That is, to bring the Messiah down. Or, Who will ascend? Who will descend into Sheol? That is, to bring the Messiah up from the dead. What then does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word about trust, which we uh, proclaim. Now, 
let me read another Pasuk for you real quick, and then I'll explain why I read the two Pesukim, okay? This next Pasuk reads, or this next passage, reads this way, quote, For this mitzvah which I'm giving you today, uh, giving to you today is not too hard for you. It is not beyond your reach. It isn't in the sky, so that you need to ask, Who will go up into the sky for us, bring it to us, and make us hear it so that we can obey it? Likewise, it isn't beyond the sea, so that you need to ask, Who will cross the sea for us, bring it to us, and make us hear it so that we can obey it? On the contrary, the word is very close to you, in your mouth, even in your heart. Therefore, you can do it. End quote. Now, without telling you the addresses for those two passages, did you hear the similarities between the two passages? Did you hear some similar language being spoken about in both passages? For instance, both passages talked about uh, ascending to heaven. Um, the, both passages talked about the word is near in your mouth and in your heart. Now, the first passage that I read is actually taken from the book of Romans, chapter 10, verses 5 through 8, and that was David Stern's version out of his CJB. It's a quote from the Apostolic Scriptures, the Chadashah, otherwise known as the Renewed Covenant or the New Testament. And it's specifically from the pen of Rabbi Shaul, Paul of Tarsus. Yet, it reads strikingly similar, wouldn't you agree, to a text from our parasha here in Nitzavim. That's in fact where I read the second passage from, was right here in our Torah portion of Nitzavim. Now, the reason I read the two passages is because, unbeknown to some well-meaning Christian readers today, Rav Shaul is actually quoting Nitzavim. That's right. If you have one of these Bibles that shows the um, uh, references where passages in the New Testament are pulling their quote from the Old Testament, then you'll find that uh, Romans 10, the passage I just read, is actually pulling its quote from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29 there. So, I read these two passages together because I want us to understand that our writer in the book of Romans, Paul, is applying a well-known rabbinical method of interpretation to his passage. And this interpretation is called Midrash. M-I-D-R-A-S-H. Now you've heard me use this word before. Midrash comes from the um, verb lidrosh, to search. And uh, he's applying a midrash to the text. Now a midrash is more or less like a homiletical application or a homily. Um, it can be a personal searching of the text and an exposition of the text by the author himself where he uh, takes the text and he spins it in such a way as perhaps was not ordinarily um, done so by every other author of his day. To be sure, Midrash has the um, characteristic of being personal. That is, when I read the passage, any given passage for that matter, doesn't not just this one, any passage can be Midrashed upon. You can take a passage and you can read it, and the Spirit of God can um, can apply it to you, or explain it to you, or... Uh, um, give you an impact uh, to the verse, you know, impact the verse to you, make it impacting to you in a personal way, and we typically call that 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 uh, impact or that personal um, that personal feeling that we get from the text. We call that um, midrash. Now, I'm not talking about personal interpretation per se. Uh, rather, I'm just talking about interacting with the text, uh, or as Mark McClellan would say, dialoguing with the text. 
where we just kind of um, uh, ask the text questions and uh, come up with some some meanings that that are very personal to ourselves. Again, as we look at the text that I just read, the one in Romans, we're going to see that Paul's conclusion to the text that he read. Now, I, I imagine that Paul was sitting down reading Parashat Nitzavim, and the Spirit of God is touching him. He's speaking to him, and at this moment, he starts to pick up this pen, or he begins to dictate to his uh, to his um, uh, the person uh, uh, recording his letter. And uh, the Spirit of God speaks to him, and out comes Romans chapter 10, is that, that little section. And so we're going to see that Paul's conclusion to the text, uh, the text here in Nitzavim, was rather radical for his day and age, to be sure. The text is also radical for our day as well. So before getting into what he, Paul, had to say, we have to first understand the passage that influenced him to write the way he wrote. So let's first explore our text from the parasha found in the Torah proper. And it's right here in Nitzavim. Let's read parasha. Uh, uh, let's read. Um, uh, let's read chapter twenty-nine. We're going to start in verse ten and read verse ten and eleven, and um, pull out some details here so that we can establish what Moshe is saying. And then um, we'll leap from that into um, Apostle Paul's uh, message over in Romans, okay? Um, this first two verses of chapter 29, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the first, uh, let's see, verse 10 and 11. And let me make sure I've got the count right. Uh, let me just pull out my stone edition Tanakh here. Turn to Deuteronomy, because I want to read the Hebrew for you. Give me a second. It shows up in my commentary, I know that. But I just want to look at something before I go much further. Um, give me a second here. Okay. Parasha Nitzavim. It's a very short passage, by the way. It's only, um, you know, two chapters long. We really could just do a verse-by-verse study, couldn't we? All right, Nitzavim. You are all standing. You are standing here. To, you are standing today, all of you, before Hashem, your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers. Okay, it's verse nine and ten in a Jewish reading, but I've got it listed in my commentary as verse ten and eleven. That's because that's how it's going to show up in your standard English Bible. Okay, so here's verse ten and eleven in your English Bible uh, from the uh, from David Stern's version. Today you are. St- <laughs> is it? Is it? Give me a second. I just realized David Stearns would follow the Hebrew, so how can it possibly be 10 and 11? I think I made a miss uh, reference there. Double check. Um, today you're standing, all of you. Okay, it is verse 10 and 11 in your English Bible, but the reading I have in my commentary is David Stearns' version, so you can follow along in your own Bible in, in chapter 29, verse 10 and 11. I'm just going to read it from you out of David Stern's version. Today you are standing, all of you, before Adonai your God, your heads, your tribes, your leaders, and your officers, all the men of Israel, along with your little ones, your wives, and your foreigners here with you in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. The, um, the, the, the first few verses, the first few pesukim are impacting for us today because they are all inclusive. I want to read the Hebrew for you real quick as well, and um, 
I just want you to hear something. The, the, the thing I want that, that should jump out to you, and I'll read the whole passage as well, but um, in the English it says, and your foreigners here with you in your camp. The rabbis are keen to write the phrase proselyte in the, um, in the stone edition of verse 10. It says, your small children, your women, and your proselyte who is in the midst of your camp. They add the word proselyte there because standard Jewish theology does not permit anyone who is not Jewish to receive words of Torah and to specifically walk into them. And so standard Jewish theology has to preserve the um, ostensible teaching, or I should say the ostensible truth, the supposed truth, that the Torah is for Jews only. However, if we go look at the Hebrew, we'll find something interesting. The Hebrew says, Atem nitzavim hayom kulchem lifnei Adonai Elohechem rashechem shivtechem ziknechem v'shotrechem kol ish Yisrael. And verse 11 reads, um, let me see where it starts here. Tabchem neshechem v'gerecha asher b'kerev machanecha mechotev this word, foreigners, in David Stern's version, and proselytes in the Stone Edition Tanakh, is the Hebrew word ger. And in the in the passage there, verse 11, it says, v'gercha, um, and the ger, or and your ger, uh, is what the uh, the suffix is trying to, the echa is trying to suggest. V'gercha, ger is the Hebrew word non-Israelite, foreigner. It's interesting that the um, sages, again, or the translators of the Stone Edition Tanakh would supply the word proselyte. What are they trying to say? Well, on one sense, again, they're trying to preserve a standard theology prevalent in first century Israel, and prevalent today as well, or still existent today, extant today, that teaches that all Israel and only Israel shares a place in the world to come and consequently shares a place in God's Torah community. There's no room for Gentiles in, the, in uh, God's Torah community. Um, it is all-inclusive. The list does include everyone. However, we're going to find out today that this list includes not only all Jews who are standing there, but the words can be applied to everyone who is non-Jewish as well. We're going to find out that it's important for that distinction to be made because Paul's midrash is going to also apply to everyone. This rather all-inclusive list of representatives here in the um, Deuteronomy list um, is, of course, Moshe speaking. The Spirit of God has already told him what to say, and now he's relating it back to the people. And by including everyone in the list, it lets us know that the important message to follow his opening needs to be heard by everyone. And the distinction is this. Oftentimes, God would speak to Moshe and have Moshe address the leaders, specifically the men of the community. The information that was given by God to Moshe would often be disseminated down through the ranks, from you know from the top down to the bottom, in a kind of a chain of command uh, type delegation. But that's different than what's going on right now. Right now we see Moshe asking everyone to assemble. In fact, asking everyone to stand at attention, as it were, to um, 
to to formally assemble it, which is what the root word of nitzavim means, to formally assemble it. It's not the normative Hebrew word stand, which is amad, uh, even though it's translated that way in many English versions. Today you are standing, all of you, today. Uh, but again, the Hebrew word here is nitzav, and it means to formally present yourself, nitzav, as compared to Ahmad. So Moshe is asking everyone to formally bring themselves together and present themselves in front of him so he can give them some parting words of instruction. That's why he has all of the people, your heads, your tribes, your leaders, and all your officers standing there. Everyone. And by inclusion, the rabbis would say in their translation, the proselyte. Now what is a proselyte? A proselyte is a convert to Judaism. A proselyte is a convert to another religion. A proselyte is someone in the process of converting. A proselyte is is someone who was not native-born from their original family clan, but decidedly switched religions um, due to whatever reasons, whatever persuasions. So the rabbis or the sages or whomever are going to supply the word proselyte in the translation where it says ger. However, in my opinion and in my experience with working with the text... That is, in fact, an anachronism. There's no need to insert the word proselyte there because God has always wanted the um, non-native-born person, the Ger, to be included in the commonwealth of Israel. And we see this borne out by the time Paul writes his letters and uh, makes this explicit. The mystery of the gospel is unfolded before our very eyes in the letters of Paul. But right now, we're looking at this in kernel form. We're looking at it in seminal form. God says, tell the ger to show up here as well. And again, if we just take it, the verse, in its pashat meaning, ger meaning stranger, we don't have to insert the word proselyte there. Well, then we see that God is interested in bringing them into this this promise that he's about to give them. The list included the officers, the leaders, the tribes, and the heads of all the men of Israel. But it didn't stop there. Verse 11 goes on to include the children and the wives of the men. Now that's interesting as well, because in Middle Eastern um, thinking, usually the wives and the children didn't show up for the meeting. The information was given to the men, the men took it home and gave it to their wives and to their children. But God this time says, um, you know, your your little ones, your wives and your foreigners, um, you know, everyone is to show up. The foreigners, of course, were people who had attached themselves to Israel as a people. Uh, some of these, by um, by definition, included those who came out of Egypt, who were not native, born to Jacob's family clan. Others may have included, um, you know, uh, uh, people who had joined Israel along the way. Either way, this is the paradigm being set for the Gentile inclusion later on in the Bible. The entire spectrum of workers in Israel was represented here. What was so important to Hashem? They had Moshe assemble all of the people. That's going to be our next question, and that is going to be the um, uh, topic that we're going to discuss next. In my commentary, we're on the bottom of page two. This next section is entitled, For Future Generations to Come. Now, we already talked last week, just as a by way of intro to this um, section, we talked last week how that Rashi uh, is fond of noticing that... Um, the, the people that are included in this text include all those who are standing here today, but that it also includes all those who are not with them. For instance, um, in Pasuk uh, 11 out of the Hebrew version, but Pasuk 12, verse 12 in your English Bible, it says in David Stern's version, um, 
the purpose is, and of course this is speaking to their coming together, the purpose is that you should enter into the covenant of Adonai your God and into his oath, which Adonai your God is making with you today, so that he can establish you today for himself as a people, and so that for you, for you he will be God, as he said to you and as he swore to your ancestors and to Avraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. Look at Pasuk 13 and 14. But I'm not making this covenant and this oath only with you. Rather, I'm making it both with him who is standing here with us today, before Adonai our God, and also with him who is not here with us today. End quote. So, let's look at this topic for future generations to come. This next section is entitled, For Future Generations to Come. You know, sometimes in speech, the tenses in the verbs can be very crucial for a proper understanding of the text. And I believe that this is such a case in this particular narrative. Now, I must resist the urge to do an exhaustive case-by-case word study here. But I do want to draw your attention, however, to the fact that in chapter 29, Moshe informs the people that the covenant that Hashem is making with them here is not just with them alone, but that the responsibilities will also fall on their ancestors to come. That's why I read those two verses. In other words... um. This includes those today who identify with Am Yisrael. Are you catching that? When we read the passage here in, in, in the, uh, Deuteronomy, we read them and we understand from a historical narrative point of view that these words apply to ancient Israel 3,500 years ago. But because Moshe also says that it does not merely apply to you today, speaking to them, but that it also applies to future generations to come, then all of us... All of all of those who identify with Israel today, all of us, we who have named the name of Hashem through Yeshua, we are Am Yisrael. Now, of course, this does include natural Israel. This includes all of the sons of Jacob, both today and, and, and down through the ages. So, these words are for us. This is for Israel. If you are grafted into Israel, then this is for you, alright? So, listen up. This lets us know that um, these words of the Torah, the covenant are pertinent for us today, and that we might do well to listen to them. The words of the covenant are given to covenant members. These verses contain our pace setter for the rest of the parasha, okay? So let's read on. Let's read now, let me jump down to um, chapter 30, uh, because the, the opening, the, you know, the verses in 29, uh, verses 13 and 14 and 15, set the pace for what I want to explain here in chapter 30. Let me read chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. And uh, I'm going to highlight the verbs here when I get back to it. Quote, When the time comes that all these things have come upon you, both the blessing and the curse, which I have presented to you, and you are there among the nations to which Adonai your God has driven you, then at last you will start thinking about what has happened to you, and you will return to Adonai your God and pay attention to what he has said, which will be exactly what I am ordering you to do today. To you and your children, with all your heart, and all your being, end quote. Now, if you have the written version, you'll notice that the verbs I underlined and highlighted um, are, are the meat of my commentary. When the time comes that all these things have come upon you, all right? Notice that Moshe is prophesying. The things that are going to come are spoken about in the uh, bulk of chapter 29, so you can go back and read them for yourself. But what Moshe is trying to explain to the people is that there's going to come a time when God is going to reach out to the people where they're at. And where are they? 
they are in exile. They are outside of the land because of their disobedience. These things have come upon you, both the blessing and the curse, which I have presented. And you are there among the nations. What are they doing among the nations? Why are they there? They are there because they failed to heed the words of the covenant. And as a result, God had no choice but to exile them and uproot them from their land, punishing them, as it were, to get their attention. God is about reconciliation and repairing of relationship. But in order to get our attention, he has to use harsh measures sometimes. And in the case of Israel, um, the final straw that God would usually use to get their attention because of their gross sin, idolatry and such, is that he would uproot them from the land. The land of Israel would actually vomit them out. And so Moshe is anticipating that that is exactly where they're going to be when this passage is going to apply them. You are there among the nations to which Adonai your God has driven you. Notice the past tense verb. It's already happened according to the prophecy. Then at last you will start thinking about what has happened to you. Okay? And you will return. Now that's the interesting promise. God, in his foreknowledge, knows that as he reaches out to his people and as they reach out to him, that God will forgive them and God will bring them back to the land. You will return to Adonai your God and pay attention to what he has said. That's repentance right there. That's the theme of what Moshe is trying to get the people to understand. God has has punished us. God has turned his back for a short while. Oh yes. But God will not remain cold. God will not remain harsh. God's arms are open wide for us. And if we will turn to him, then he will turn to us and he will return us to the land. God will return and pay attention uh, uh, to us. And we will also pay attention to what he has said, the words of the covenant. And which words is Moshe referring to? He says it in the verse. Uh, the words which I am ordering you to do today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your being. The words of the covenant are so important for Israel. Now this is quite a statement, these, these three or four verses here. What could the Holy One possibly be mean? Uh, possibly mean by all of this? I mean, was he really predicting the disobedience of his children? I mean, surely if they did disobey and breaking his covenant, wouldn't he bring upon them every curse that's written in the book? Look at twenty nine, twenty seven, chapter twenty nine, verse twenty seven. That's what he says he will do. Every curse is written in the book of this law will come upon you. Sadly, the Torah historically records. You know, that the people, exa- they, they did do exactly as Hashem said they would. God was not really saying that they had to make this choice. The people made the choices. The people failed. God simply foresaw their failure and told them about it, warned them about it in advance, giving them, as it were, a chance to change their ways before they even happened. It's kind of like a, it's kinda like a, a sign in front of you as you're driving down the road, or a sign that says, Bridge out, danger ahead. Okay? What would happen if you kept driving? You would drive off the, the road and down the, the, the crevice and into danger, right? And possibly into death. And so the sign is warning you about the impending danger that is to befall you if you do not heed the warning. Is the sign predicting the future uh, of your downfall? No. It's simply saying, this is the choice, this is the consequence of the choice that lies ahead if you choose this. If you do not stop where you're at now and turn around or take a different road, 
That's kind of what the Torah is doing. It places before us a choice. We're going to see that there's there's a choice given. Moshe actually says later on down in the passage, I set before you life and death. Life on the one hand, death on the other hand. And the people are not forced to go down one path or the other. God freely offers the choice. But they can, they, they can choose. God simply says, you know what? Based on your choices, the choices that you make, here are the consequences of your choices. And sadly, that's what I mean. The Torah historically records that the people did choose the wrong way. They forsook the Lord their God. They prostrated themselves to and served false gods. False gods, I might add, that the Holy One despised. False gods that their fathers didn't know. But Moshe's discourse doesn't stop there. The people make bad choices. We all make bad choices. God doesn't force us to make the wrong choice. God offers us the right choice. We simply choose wrong. God does not leave it at that. God does not say, oh well, that's your that, that's the bed you made, now lie in it. <laughs> Moshe doesn't stop here with just saying, oh well, this is where this is where the consequences are going to go. No. Moshe mentions that the people would return to Hashem. So if we're going to take this as prophecy, as God looking into the future of the people and predicting what's going to happen, then we have to take the entire passage because God actually says through Moshe, that you will return to the Lord your God and pay attention to what he has said. So if we're going to take it as prophecy, then there's hope. There's hope. There's a measure. There's a, what do we say? A silver lining behind the cloud. Or every cloud has a silver lining. Or there's a light at the end of the rainbow or at the end of the tunnel or something to that effect. It's not all doom and gloom. Torah's not prophesying the destruction of the whole, the wholesale destruction of the people of Israel. Rather, it, 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 if anything, it's predicting that the people in exile, were turned to the Lord our God. Let's read further, alright? Um, let's see what I want to do. It is about 30 minutes into the commentary at this point in time. And let me read on down through the top of page 4, and then we'll break this part off and call it part A, okay? Reading down to chapter 30, at verse 3, the second part there, reads, quote, At that point, Adonai your God will reverse your exile and show you mercy. Adonai, your God, will reverse your exile and show you mercy. Notice that it's true that the people get themselves into hot water. But it's equally true that God does not give up on them. Even in exile, God will reverse their exile and show them mercy. What kind of mercy do you suppose they deserved while they were in exile? I think the answer is none. They deserved none. Why? What got them into hot water? their gross disobedience and neglect of God's words, their spurning of God's covenant, their turning their backs on God's ways, the Spirit of God speaking to them, but the people saying no, their stiff necks, their stubbornness, their hardened hearts, and their uncircumcised ears. That's what got them into trouble. Do they deserve mercy? Absolutely not. So we can see that it's all up to God. When we are in trouble, what have we to do? The, the lesson's obvious. What can we do? We simply have to cry out to God and ask for forgiveness, beg for mercy. And the neat thing, or the wonderful thing, I should say, not just neat, but wonderful, is that the passage says at that point, Adonai, your God, will reverse your exile and show you mercy. Now, Baruch Hashem, blessed be the name. This is marvelous. This is grace at work. This is mercy. Whoever said there was no grace in the Old Testament, the sovereign Lord himself would bring about the return of the people to the land of promise. It was not something they could do. It's not by might or power, but it's by the Spirit of the Lord. It's by His mercy. 
pouring it out on the people, pouring out his mercy to them, extending his right arm to them. They didn't deserve it, and they were not going to get back to the land on their own. We see here unequivocally that it is the power of Hashem that brings about a true change of heart. God has the ability to change the heart. Judaism, you know, has a term for this turnaround. We call it teshuva, or tshuva, or teshuva, however you want to pronounce it. And you know, in its truest definition, repentance, or teshuva, it always, always involves a 180 degree forsaking of the error, and in Israel's case it would be idolatry, a 180 degree forsaking of the error in return back to the truth. It's not enough to simply say, God, I'm sorry. There must be an accompanying action. Our heart turns, but our actions must follow. Hashem has just instructed the people that despite their apostasy, He would show them mercy and cause their repentance, cause their their teshuvah. Now to be sure, He takes it a step further and introduces a concept familiar to Christian readers in the New Covenant. Read this passage carefully, people. Read it again. Circumcision of the heart. Right there in chapter 30, verse 6. Circumcision of the heart. Imagine that. It's what we Christians call a New Testament feature. But we must understand that it has been the requirement of God's people from day one. God has always required a circumcised heart of his people. There's no different standard being presented when we get to the New Testament times. Faith and circumcised heart in the New Testament, whereas we merely had obedience to the Torah in the Old. No, it's not so. These verses are full of surprises indeed, right? You know, I have to wonder out loud sometimes, how many of the house of Israel really stopped to read all the magnificent promises that are spelled out for them right here in this parasha? Is Israel reading this today? Are they really, really reading it? I mean, really letting it sink in. I also have to wonder out loud how many Christians even even know that these passages exist here in the quote-unquote Old Testament. It's a shame that we have this split between the two parties. Church on one side, synagogue on the other. We have one unified God and one unified word word of God. We should be coming together and discussing these concepts but really, Hashem's just getting started, so let's keep reading further. Quote, 30 verse 10. However, all this, speaking of the repentance, speaking of turning to God, all of this will only happen if you what? Pay attention to what Adonai your God says, so that you obey his mitzvot and regulations, which are written in this book of the Torah. End quote. Now at this point in time, right here in this verse, this brings us exactly to where our rabbi from Tarsus started in the opening pasik of my commentary. All right, We're now really come full circle to what Paul is trying to explain. And at this point in time, it's going to get really, really interesting. Because we're going to read Parashat Nitzavim, these particular verses, but we're going to read them through the lens of Paul in Romans chapter 10. All right, In order to stand, understand what I'm referring to, I'm going to ask you, the student, to go back and read on your own Romans, start in chapter 9 to get the running context. Start in chapter 9 with around, say, verse 31, and then read through chapter 10, verse 5. And now we're going to pick up the reading um, with Paul's midrash in Romans chapter 10. This next section is entitled The Scarlet Thread of the Torah. Now here's the meat of my commentary, people. I want you to pay attention. The nation of Israel as a whole failed to grasp 
the central concept of the teaching of Moshe here in Parshat Nitzavim, and consequently the teaching of Rav Shaul in the first century. It's because the nation as a whole failed to grasp the central concept of the portion and failed to heed the dire warning found therein that they found themselves the recipient of Paul's rebuke. Quite frankly, Paul was trying to reach out to them in the same way that Moshe was reaching out to them. Moshe, as you see, describes in no uncertain terms the availability of the grace of Hashem when it comes to attaining life. Most assuredly, as I mentioned earlier, Moshe presents before the people the option to choose life and good or choose death and evil. We see this in Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 through 21. And now we have to stop and ask ourselves, is Moshe talking only to Israel? Or is he talking to everyone? Well, according to standard Jewish theology, he's only speaking to Jewish people, or Jewish Israel. Remember, first century Jewish Israel had engineered a theology, a prevailing theology, that taught that, taught that all Israel and only Israel shared a place in the covenant, and consequently shared a place in the world to come. In other words, to use Christian parlance, all Israel and only Israel were saved. And the word Israel there is read as Jewish Israel. It means that from their perspective, there was no place for a non-Jew. If a non-Jew wished to make um, entry into the covenant, he had to first hurdle the um, the, uh, 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 the uh, what is it? As I would say, hurdle the um, restriction of of um, uh, of conversion. You know, I was going to say that all he had to do was uh, begin to walk in God's ways, but that's not the way Israel um, uh, had set it up in the first century. That's not the way that they saw it. They saw that the only way for a non-Jew to get in was to convert to Judaism, become a Jew, and thus he could make his entryway into the covenant and begin to walk in the ways of God. Now, we've done enough studies on this website and in my own um, parashot that uh, uh, we now understand that that is not correct theology. God extends covenant provision and blessing and choices to anyone who would place their genuine trust in him. Now, today that means genuine faith in Yeshua. The proof was in the first few verses that we read in the uh, Torah portion, way back in chapter 29, uh, verses 9 and 10. <speaking in Hebrew> This passage that I read in Hebrew includes the Hebrew word ger in verse 11 there. The gerecha. Who's the ger? The ger, G-E-R. Who is the ger? This is the Hebrew word meaning foreigner. This is the Hebrew word that many Jewish uh, translators in various versions of the Bible, specifically the art school edition that I have here in front of me, translates as proselyte. What's a proselyte? Glad you asked. Proselyte is a, con- is a convert to Judaism. Someone on, someone on his way to converting. But that is really an anachronism. It's taking something that exists today and placing it back into the text where it doesn't belong. It's out of place in time. And so, we know that this reading into the text. God is speaking to everyone here. God's speaking to the native-born and those who are non-native-born. And the non-native-born needn't change his stripes to become covenant member. In fact, the fact that Moshe is speaking to him 
is proof of his covenant membership. He's already standing there today. He's assembled there. He is formally presenting himself, which is what, what the root word Nitzav means. Moshe is speaking to all existing covenant members. They've already joined themselves to Israel. And the Ger is no exception. So in the verses quoted at the onset of my commentary, Moshe describes it, capital I-T, as not being too hard for them to grasp. All right? He describes the it as not being beyond their reach either, remember? Go back and look at the verse. Let me just read it for you again. All right? It is in verses... 11 through 14. For this mitzvah which I'm giving you today is not too hard for you. It is not beyond your reach. It isn't in the sky. So that you need to ask who will go up into the sky and bring it to us and make us hear it so that we can obey it. Likewise, it isn't beyond the sea. So that you need to ask who will cross the sea for us and bring it to us. Make us hear it so that we can obey it. On the contrary, the word isn't very close to you in your mouth, even in your heart. Therefore, you can do it. That it... Now now we're going to make the Midrash from Paul, okay? Moshe describes this it as not being too hard for them to grasp. He describes the it as not being beyond their reach. This important it wasn't in the sky, which was obviously out of their reach, right? Providing them with a legitimate excuse for disobedience. Had it remained there? Likewise, the it wasn't beyond the sea, which for Israel would have been the Mediterranean Sea to their immediate west. Um, it wasn't beyond the sea, providing them once again with the same excuse for disobedience. Okay, these are all hypothetical situations when Moshe says, it's not here, it's not there. Moshe is anticipating their excuses, you know, the excuses of a, of a stubborn people who, who stubbornly refuse to follow God's ways and say, well, you know, we could do it if it wasn't so far away or if it wasn't so hard uh, to do, if it wasn't out of reach, if it wasn't so impossible a task to do. You ever heard the term that, the, that no one can keep the Torah? You ever heard that today? Nobody can keep all of God's laws. It is impossible to do. Well, we're going to challenge that today. The it wasn't beyond the sea, providing him with an excuse. On the contrary, Moshe says that it was very close to them in their mouths, even in their hearts. Again, that's a new covenant feature. It's in their hearts. Therefore, they could do it. So again, whoever said that a person could not keep the, uh, uh, the Torah? I don't know where this concept comes from. We can't keep the Torah. Where, where does this idea that, that, that it's too difficult to do, where does it come from? doesn't come from the Bible, obviously, right? Um, you ever heard someone say, you know, God's asking too much of me. It's just, it's an impossible task. He's asking too much of me. I'd do it if it wasn't so much. Again, obviously, it's not found in the passages that we're reading here. But wait a minute. What is the it in the passages? When we read Moshe's passage here in Devarim, obviously, or maybe not so obviously, the it that Moshe is referring to can only be the Torah, right? Or could it also be a remez, a hint of something even greater? Rav Shaul, I believe, supplies us with the answer to the question I just asked. What is the it? Now, I need you, the reader, to recall the strange but true example that John used in chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 of his gospel as well, in order to answer the important question of what the it is. You see, here John gives us a lesson in what I like to call Torah algebra. What we see is that in verse 1 of John's book, the Torah was with Hashem. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Yet, John goes on to tell us that the Torah is Hashem. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? The Word equals God. Torah equals Hashem. But in verse 14 of John's book, he goes on to let us know that the Torah became a human being and lived with us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, the Torah is equal to this person, this human being. You see the algebra now? The Torah is equal to Hashem, and the Torah is equal to a human being. Well, the rest of John's account in, uh, in that first chapter, I might add, explicitly states that Yeshua, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is that human being. He is that word that was with God and that was God, and that dwelt among us. So according to Torah algebra, watch how this works. If the Torah equals Hashem, if the Word equals God, and the Word equals the human being, that is to say the Torah equals the human being, then if we put the two back together, then Hashem equals the human being. God equals the person. God equals the man controversial, no? Yeah. No Jew using normal modes of logic would accept this interpretation. Ask any Jew today whether or not Yeshua is God, and you'll if you don't get a slap in the face or a punch in the nose, then you'll just get a scoff, and, and certainly that's the way that most Jewish people are going to understand um, any approach uh, to this particular topic of ontology. No one would accept this mode of, of interpretation. No one would use this form of logic that I'm describing that John uses here in his passage. But Rav Shaul was not using normal logic when he quoted the passage in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11-14. And what did he do with the it that I just described earlier? Well, Paul applied his rabbinical teaching tool called Midrash. Remember we talked about that. What was Paul's Midrash? Well, he's using heavenly logic in his Midrash. And so what ends up happening is that in the Romans 10 passage, which is quoting Parashat Nitzavim, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Yeshua the Messiah is undoubtedly the subject of Romans chapter 10 verses 5 through 8. Yet Paul the rabbi identifies the it of Deuteronomy with the Messiah. Why did Paul do this? And how could he do this? How is it possible that the Messiah is the it of Deuteronomy? Why could he do this? Why? Because of the truth that you and I already know about Yeshua, as explained earlier by John. Yeshua came from heaven. He did not remain up there out of reach, providing us with what? Some ostensible excuse for lack of faith, which leads to disobedience? Notice how he's intimately connected to the it in the, in the passage in Deuteronomy. Nor is Yeshua beyond the sea. He's not beyond the sea. Or to use the same word that, that Paul used, he's not in Sheol. Okay? Paul um, changes the language a bit, uh, um, but it doesn't change the impact of the passage. In fact, that Paul doesn't use the exact same wording as Moshe here, but opts for the example of Sheol, or the place of the dead, in essence, hell. It does not seriously alter the meaning of what Moshe meant. In fact, in Shaul's example, he actually takes Moshe's words and pushes them a little deeper as far as application is concerned. He gets a little bit um, 
more depth to what Moshe's actually saying. And that's okay, because Yeshua did the same thing with Moshe's words. He would bring out more of the Torah's true meaning and intentions by explaining um, more depth and more spiritual uh, understanding to the passages. And that's exactly what Paul's doing when he says that Messiah is not in heaven, nor is he still in hell. In fact, for the Hebrew mind, in Paul's day and as well as today, if something was beyond the sea, which is you know beyond the Mediterranean Sea, then call the Homer argument, it might as well have been in Sha'ul, for it was beyond the reach of normal human efforts to obtain. Do you know what I mean when I say call the Homer, light from heavy? If A is greater than B and B is greater than C, how much more is A greater than C? If Messiah is across the sea, then perhaps maybe we might think we could journey to him and reach him. But if he's in hell, then we can't go there and follow after him. So it's call the Homer argument. He's too far for us to reach. Therefore, he bridges the gap for us. Across the sea is far, but in hell is impossible. Therefore, the Messiah was raised from the dead so that he could come to us. So again, in the case of Sha'ol, it was impossible for anyone to go that far. At any rate, Yeshua was not and still is not beyond the reach of normal human efforts today. Where is he? He has been raised from Sheol by the power of Hashem and now is available. He sits at the right hand of the power on high and he is available for anyone who will trust. That's right. His trust, his life from the dead is all-inclusive. He is the it of the Deuteronomy passage from a Midrashic point of view. Now we can understand why Moshe would say, Today all of you are standing before Adonai your God, your heads, your tribes, your leaders, and your officers, all the men of Israel. And he goes on to include everyone, uh, the men, the, uh, the women, the children, the strangers, everyone. Why? Because just as the words of Torah equally apply to everyone who, is with, who has entered into a covenant with God, so much more, again, using Kalvakuma argument, so much more has the Messiah been made available to everyone who will trust. You see, these choices that God presents before us, life and death, are the very same choices that Moshe was presenting before the people that day. Choose life so that you may live. The it of the passage is the life found in covenant with God. This is seen on the earthly level as we walk out our obedience to God's words. But on the heavenly scale, this is reckoned to our account as righteousness when we place our unreserved trust in Yeshua the Messiah, the it of Paul's Midrash in Romans chapter 9. You see... Because the goal, or the focus, at which the Torah aims is the Messiah, then all that go on to receive him, find as Hashem promised through the mouth of Moshe, life and good. The commandments cannot give us the ultimate goal that the Torah is pointing towards. They have a limited capacity to take us only so far. But life eternal can be found if we place our trust and faith in Yeshua, the man who came from heaven. You see, the Torah points to this man. Romans 10.4 reads in most Christian versions, English Bibles, 
Christ is the end of the law for all that believe. I think that's similar to how it reads in the KJV. It's unfortunate that in our blindness in the Christian church, we've engineered this verse to explain that Jesus brings the Torah to an end. Reading that Greek word telos there, uh, normally rendered as, as, as end, but we, we render this as um, cessation. Christ is the cessation of the law. It's unfortunate that that is not what Paul meant when he wrote that verse. It cannot be what he meant, because as we go on to read further in Paul's writings, and as we go on to properly understand Moshe, Christ is not the end of the law. Rather, Christ is the goal of the Torah. He is that to which the Torah is pointing towards. The entire scope of the Torah points and orients its followers, its readers, its listeners, its its it's those who 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 uh, um, uh, uh, how should I say those who interact with it not just passively but actively the entire goal of the Torah the thrust of the Torah is to to expel its its participants towards the man Yeshua and that's what Paul means when he says Christ is the end of the law it's better rendered in David Stern's version as for the goal at which the Torah aims is the Messiah. Christ isn't the end of the law, people. He's the goal of the Torah. And once we reach the Messiah, the Torah has played its most important function in our lives, bringing us to the teacher of righteousness. But it doesn't stop there. You see, we can see from these examples here in the Torah and in Paul's writings how intimately Yeshua relates to the Torah. Not just as the living word, like John says, but as the eternal choice presented to man. Moshe says, choose life by walking in God's ways. Paul says, choose life eternal by walking into Yeshua. You know, we're all presented with the same choice. All of us. That's why I read the passage in Hebrew the way I did. It's not just for Jewish people, people. It's not just for the Jews. You think God would only be interested in saving the Jews but sending everyone else to hell? I don't think so. That's not what my Bible teaches me. God is interested in bringing all men unto himself. And to this end, he has provided us with both the words of the Torah, and most importantly, he's provided us with his only son. Today, we are presented with a choice. Life through Yeshua, the living Torah, the living word, or death because of disobedience and disbelief. Now, considering the abundant mercy that the Holy One, blessed be he, has poured out through his son, How can we not accept him as our Savior? I'll leave you with that question. The closing blessing is as follows. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. You have given us your Torah of truth and have planted everlasting life within us our midst. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. With that, I wish you a hearty Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua, through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, 
without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.